Okay, good morning. Um, pretty giddy this morning because I had a coffee and I'm looking at the surf and it's worth a surf, so I've kind of got this excitability about me. Like a small child. <laughs> That's what a guy said once, actually. He came to Oz and um, he's from Yorkshire. He come over. And it's all these old blokes are like little kids running down the road with the surfboards. <laughs> That's what it is. You still giddy like a little kid, excited. It's good. Don't lose that. If you've lost it, go find it. All right. Shit. Offshore winds. Hasn't rained for about bloody 10 years. We're down to 1,000 litres of water at home. We're all like. Like the water from the sink I put in the compost bin and then I use it to water the plants. Um, hang on, I just got to get out because my um, strap on my car is banging against the uh, back of the cab on the ute because um, it's offshore. Okay, we be rolling. Damn, it is howling offshore. Yeah, we got so little water that um, I just bring a couple of juice bottles down with me, like the five-litre ones, fill them up with water, and then have a shower after a surf. Water the grass out here at Gallows. Okay, so um, after the um, incident where the eight Australian guys took me on a circuit train around Mitchell Street and... Elkie's backpackers. I um, came down from my penthouse sleep location. We went back to Elkie's. Joint was trashed. And I told Bri about what happened. Um, the girls blamed me, by the way. I said, oh, you shouldn't have said that to them. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I said to Bri, look, man, we've got to get out of here. There's some lunatics up here. And we'd gone out again and there was a guy just clenching his fist, wandering around, wanting to punch people in the face. Just too many knobs. Um, so we went around looking at all the backpackers' um, notice boards, which was the uh, the internet back then. That was where you that was your chat room, and um, we're reading all the different um, notices on the notice boards, like hair clippers for rent, price one beer. Two guys want to share a ride to anywhere. Contact Brian Rich at Elkie's Backpackers. Um, didgeridoo for sale, plus camping gear, plus Lonely Planet of India. Also, if you have any odd jobs you need doing, I'm your man. Contract Desperate Bob. Leave a message on Combi Windscreen, parked in Sportsman Car Park. If you guys meet a guy called Danny from Liverpool, beware, he's a low-life thief. He drove off with all our belongings, leaving us in the middle of the Nullarbor. Karma will get you, you bastard. Klaus, if you're in town, contact me, ASAP. I still have your passport. Nicky, I'm at the YMCA. P.S., you still owe me $300. <laughs> and amongst all this, there was a sign, it said, Crew Wanted. To sail to Broome. Two months trip, no experience necessary, share expenses and food costs. Contact Dave on the Magica at Dinah Beach Yacht Club. 
Man, we saw that, and we just like, go, go, go. <laughs> Rang him up. Hi, hi, Dev. Uh, yeah, it's Brian Rich here. Um, yeah, we're really good guys. And uh, Yeah, come down, mate. Come down, and uh, we'll have a chat. First of all, we were bombing down on the bikes. It was all downhill, down at Downer Beach. Straight down past the bar, and um, there's this dude. He's got a boat up on dry dock, and he's sanding the hull. It's a white monohull yacht. I think it's 30 foot long. It's got a red stripe around it, and um, Starsky and Hutch style, but in reverse. And um, he's a wiry sort of guy, like olive skin, like bushy curly hair, big white teeth, and um, he's all ghosted up with his fiberglass that he's been sanding to uh, redo the anti-foul on the hull. And the anti-foul, if you don't know what that is, it's um, the stuff you put on the bottom of boats to stop things actually living and attaching to your boat. It's a toxic shit. I guess the analogy in uh, Yorkshire would be putting dog shit on your handlebars so no one steals your bike. But out here, and all around the world, and in marinas, they use antifoul. I think they're getting a bit better now, but otherwise, it's a toxic, horrible thing. But the option is now they actually bring the boats out of the water on these uh, like little rubber ducky things that you can jack your boat out of the water so you don't have to put antifoul. Because they slow your boat down, all the barnacles get on there and you just lose speed. When Big Hair saw his lay our bikes down on the boat ramp, he took off his dust mask and smiled. Good day, lads. Good day, lads, he said, wiping away the dust that sneaked down the sides of his mask. We shook hands, and we stared into the face of a free man. Dave sprung up the steps onto the deck, and we followed him, awkward as we were in this alien place, that he could have swung around with his eyes closed. Dave knew his boat intimately. He'd made a magica himself from scratch over two years. He'd hired the mold and endured the fumes of the resin building up in the layers of fiberglass, fitting the engine, mast and sails, knowing that the hard work would be worth it. A magica was going to take him around the world. We sat in the galley. The breeze blew in off a windsock. And Dave poured out cheap cordial. On the walls, photographs told little stories of previous crew. Wind-swept, sun-streaked and sea-sprayed, people with ivory smiles. One picture was made up entirely of suntan feet. Another of a naked young woman caught tiptoeing around the deck. Dave handed us a book and asked if we knew where the Kimberleys were. We didn't. We didn't even know what they were. Bry opened the book and started to read. The Kimberleys are one of the most isolated places in the world. One of Australia's last frontiers, bordered by the Timor Sea and the Indian Ocean to the north and west, and the Great Sandy Desert to the south. It's about 420,000 square kilometres in area, making it much larger than the United Kingdom. Despite how big the place is there are only three towns with a population of over 2,000 and a total population of 25,000. 40% of the peoples here are Aboriginal. 
There's only one main road. Many areas are only accessible by air or sea. Tides can be treacherous with a range of up to 30 feet. I think it's around the highest tides, 12 meters. So it's over 30 feet, it's like 36 feet. Because of the high number of estuarine crocodiles, it's recommended that a gun should be taken when venturing ashore. This was the end of the wet season. It was the best time to go when cyclones were less likely and the landscape more lush than arid. Dave said he wanted to take his time sailing for only a few hours per day, hugging the coast most of the way, stopping off where he could, find shelter from the wind and the swell of the ocean, sailing up rivers inland, climbing waterfalls, bush trekking, exploring caves, fishing, campfires on the beach. Due to the high risk of coming into contact with crocs, sharks and box jellyfish, the only contact with the ocean would be by roping out a bucket and the only times we'd get a fresh water wash was if we climbed when in inland and climbed up above the brackish water into fresh water. Dave had to get back to his work, anti-fouling the hull. We, has we asked him if he needed a hand but he declined. The tide hadn't turned and it was obvious, it was an obvious brown nose. He had a few more people to see before he made his decision so we should come back down later for a beer in the club bar. He'd know by then what the girl was. When we returned later, there was these two um, good-looking French girls chatting to Dave and his crew around the table. They shook hands and they left. Well, looks like we're not going, Bri, I thought. And it would have been, but if it hadn't been for Gus. Gus was already a crew member. Gus. The name had thrown me. I'd imagined a big hairy gorilla of a bloke, but Gus was a woman, about 40. And Dave's claiming arm around her waist meant the good-looking French girls might not come into it. Brian went to the bar to give Gus and Dave a chance to talk. When we returned, Dave talked enthusiastically about the trip, but stopped himself. Well, lads, I've told you so much about the trip. You may as well come with us. Brilliant. Brian and me, we pulled our money, which came at 3,427 Aussie dollars. We had to get more time on our visas or we'd be illegal immigrants before we reached Broome. I went and combed down my hair and cycled down to immigration, dressed in my cycling top that scrubbed up like new, hoping to pass myself off as an athlete rather than another dodgy traveller. It was Friday afternoon and I was in a state of paranoia, expecting to be treated like a criminal after a bad experience with a cold fish in Singapore. My number came up so I walked toward the counter and handed over my forms to the woman. She looked me up and down. Here we go, I thought. And when people look at me in these situations, I always look guilty. <laughs> I got, I, there's a trick, actually. You take something to read. So if you're in that situation, just take a book with you. And when they're sort of looking you up and down and it's all silent while they do their business, just start reading a book or something. You look really relaxed. 
So, you're planning to cycle your mate to Sydney? I'd extended the charity ride final destination to Sydney. It was a white lie, but we had already ridden for charity. And this white lie probably didn't even register on the karma scale. And you want a six-month extension on your visa? Yes. You got enough cash, haven't you? Handed her my bank statement, but she didn't even look at it. And it's cheap travelling by bike, camping in the bush most nights. But six months. Ah, oh, here we go. I'll give you twelve if you want, she whispered. I can't believe it. It's like Friday afternoon vibes. Oh, and unless your mate's a fast cyclist, I suggest he gets himself down here before we close. Bloody brilliant. We had 12-month visas again. It's like a full top-up, full credits. Since we were heading out with Dave on a Magica, we started to keep on the cheap again. We camped on the top of a hill above Columbia Marina and woke to find ourselves in the path of an electric storm. Thick bolts of static snaked out of the ground and the wind blew furiously. Brian me laid on our backs, feebly trying to hold the tent walls out with our legs. High really wasn't a good idea with all this crashing and flashing going on. And after all the life-threatening episodes of light, I wondered if God himself was set to finish us off. The following night, the sky was clear, and still, we kept on top of the old lookout tower over at East Point. Holy shit, it's blowing so much now. It's like I'm in the Sahara. Sorry if there's some wind there, guys. Just imagine you're on the East Point in Darwin and the wind's howling. The following night, the sky was clear and still. We kept on top of the big old lookout tower over at East Point. The steel grid put our arms to sleep and dug into our hips, but the setting made up for it, overlooking the ocean and a perfect sunset that cast off strawberry skies to the east. Bri was snoring, I was drifting in and out of slumber, changing positions on the steel deck, giving my hips a break, and trying to wake up my arm. When the dream I was in started to shake, I could hear voices. Hey man, wake up, man! And I could smell marijuana. Wake up, dudes! We opened our eyes. The guy was silhouetted against the night sky, a joint glowing in the corner of his mouth. I was looking up his leg, up right up to how tall he was, and um, just this spliff glowing amongst the stars. Wake up, dudes! I opened my eyes. He was pointing to a comet, streaking its way through the galaxy. I think it was Haley Bob, and without any light pollution, it's just this amazing visible comet just tearing through the edge of the atmosphere. Wicked man, I managed to say, before his voice tapered away, and my eyelids closed around the fireball in the heavens. Later in the night, spotlights flashed across the tower as if it were sentries. Car tires on gravel. The stoners had gone, and it was getting colder, but someone else was coming. 
I opened my eyes wishing to see the sun, but the night was lasting forever. The towers started to vibrate again, and I waited for the inevitable appearance of somebody who at this hour would have to be loaded. There's someone up here! The drunk woman wailed. Then a man's voice behind her, more baritone. Come on, love, let's go. But I want to fuck! Want to fuck you up here? We always do it up here. No, it wasn't like that. There's someone up here. Uh, man's voice, come on, love, let's go. But I want to fuck. I want to fuck you up here. We always do it up here. She, she stood over us for an agonizing moment. I thought she might even try to convince us to move. But eventually her voice grew weaker. And I smiled to myself, thinking she probably had a few other places in mind. Leo the Greek. Rich out, pass me that box of beans, will you? Josie called out from behind a big bum. She was bent down over the food hole, loading up the stores. She was sweating for her efforts. Josie was the fifth crew member and a real card. Forty years of age, she had Nirvana a full blast on the stereo and she's singing at the top of her voice. Josie's love of food had contributed to her size. She was a very generous, loving person. She had a few suggestive comments to us young bucks, but um, she was harmless. Josie was a madame of a modern-day escort agency in Darwin. I don't know any facts beyond that. We never asked her about it. Um... Oh, me and two young men in the middle of nowhere, she said and laughed, as Bri and me shifted nervously in our seats. Bri was in town. He decided to sell his bike, and he was a bit sad in giving up his wheels after so many miles. But not as sad as his sister-in-law, who had lent him her bike six months back. Hey, pedestrian, I shouted at him as I dropped him off from a pillion ride into town. I'll pick you up at two o'clock outside Woolworths. A pillion ride, a backy. You know the deal. So Bryce sat on the, on the saddle and I pedalled him into town. It's all flat, so it wasn't too hard. I'll pick you up at two outside Woolies. I told him, but at two o'clock I was looking down the barrel of another mango smoothie at the Marina Cafe. It was too hot to think about rushing around. But the thought of Bri kicking his heels in town got me off, out of my seat and into my saddle. It was two kilometres into town. I pushed hard on the pedals down Mitchell Street. The lights were at green as I was approaching. A Land Cruiser up ahead was turning right, so I sped down the left side, heading straight forward. I was going fast as I slipped down the inside of the Land Cruiser. Suddenly, in my periphery on the right, a black shape came in at the corner of my vision. A big black demon charging toward me. I told myself it wasn't happening, even as the car took out my front wheel and my back tyre left the road. I was going over in my mind, about to flip, but I, th I was going so slow in my mind from the adrenaline I thought I could stop it. I wouldn't go over the bars, not me. I was going to be just fine. It was hot lead on the tarmac at two o'clock in the afternoon. I cleared the car and rolled down the highway like a sack of spuds. 
it would have been about seven meters, I reckon, or around seven meters, because I flew over the car and about three or so car widths. I was thinking the demon wasn't going to stop because it carried on up the highway a ways before the black falcon pulled over. Jet black, beast of a thing, massive tyres. And the engine's grunting. And his registration was actually naughty. The word naughty. <laughs> Crazy. And Leo, the Greek guy, stepped out into the sunshine. Two guys had chased after him because it seemed he was all for doing a runner. But he said it was his car that wouldn't stop. I'd have to try and get up. My back was burning. My bum was burning. My arms were burning. Brian had given up on his pillion ride and was meandering back to the hostel as he approached the traffic lights. An ambulance pulled up and the crowd had gathered around me. Brian spotted my shoes in the road. A pannier bag ripped open. Then he saw my mangled bike. Reg! Reg! I heard his concerned voice before he managed to break through the crowd. A familiar face in a wall of strangers. The look of worry on his face. After this, we gave up on sleeping rough. Bry helped me back up the street with my mangled bike, back to Elkies, and we got drunk in celebration of being alive, which we didn't take for granted these days. Leo was a decent guy, like, even if he did almost kill me. He paid to fix up my bike, and it was looking mint. So mint that when I left it with Smithy and we got on the yacht, someone stole it. <laughs> Bastards. It was amazing, actually, because um, back then, no helmets. I was wearing sandals and a singlet. And I flew... I mean, if that happened to me now, I reckon I'd be in hospital forever. <laughs> it was just because it happened so fast, I just did not have time to tense up. And I literally just rolled onto my shoulder and um, didn't even put my hands down. Rolled onto my shoulder. And because I hit the car, I hit the back wheel arch. And like Leo said, he could see my little legs wiggling in <laughs> like I was swimming through the air through his uh, rearview mirror um, <laughs> and then I must have just dropped my shoulder and rolled down the road so it took up all the speed in the horizontal rather than straight into the vertical so I think I had a slightly sore ankle because I had the old fashioned pedal clips where you put your feet in the pedal it's like a shoe, like a half shoe and then the clip goes over the top so it must have reefed my foot out of there, so that hurt my ankle a bit. But then as I rolled, it was just a, a graze on my shoulder, and I think my elbow was cut a bit. But apart from that, fine and dandy. <laughs> so lucky. Sailing out from Darwin, I can hear a distant voice. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me? Excuse me? The voice is getting closer, almost at my ear, louder. I open my eyes, but it's pitch black. The blackness speaks to me. Can you get out of my bunk, please? 
I speak back to the darkness. Yeah, sure, mate. Where am I? You're in the white chair backpackers? Oh, right. Cheers, man. Sorry. And I roll out of this dude's bunk and just keep on the floor. Not fully recollecting how I became here, I roll onto the floor back into sleep. When I wake, wake again, daylight slicing through the blockout curtains. I suddenly realise I'm going to miss the fucking boat. David told us to be at the yacht club for 6.30am, but it's getting on for 8 o'clock, no matter how fast I pedal. My only security is that I'm riding Dave's push bike. Cheers, mate. A yachty opens the security gate, a Karen rolling down the ramp and along the jetty. Dave is about the deck doing a final check. Richard, glad you could make it. Dave throws me a spanner. Take off the wheels, turn the bars, drop the seat and chuck her up here, mate. We'll get out of here. Because of the huge um, tidal range, we have to pass through a lock to get out of Cullen Bay Marina. It's a great feeling to be travelling again. Darwin and all its dangers slowly fading away. Dave is at the helm, directing us how to set the sails. The front sail is known as the head sail. The centre sail is the main. When sailing into the wind, the main and the head sail act like aeroplane wings. The air passes over the front, creating a negative pressure at the back. On a plane, this creates uplift, but on a sail, it drives the yacht forward. This meant we could sail within 45 degrees of a headwind. When we did have to change direction, tacking, or jibing when you're going downwind, Brian and I would be on the sheets, the ropes, holding the rear bottom corner of the head sail, ready for the word to let one slide off and winch the other one tight. Gus eased around the mainsail. Josie helped a little with the sailing, but she made no bones that she would rather kick back on deck and do her share in the galley. If the wind got too strong, the rigging can be strained or even broken, so the crew had to be quick to spill the wind by loosening off the sheet or the mainsail. If the strong winds persist, the main can be reefed up into a smaller size and the headsail change for a smaller one. Dave's headsails range from big number one down to Dave's storm sail which wasn't much bigger than a tea towel. Well, it's probably as big as a tarp for a tiny, the tiniest um, trailer. Dave was a fine tuner, guiding us to trim the sails. If they were luffing in the wind, like flapping or too tight, he'd tell us to let them off or bring them on. Looking at the telltales that were on the sails, these little strips that show which side of the sail the wind's passing. Dave told us which course to hold on the compass when we were at the helm. He was a great navigator, using the, some would say, antiquated sextant. GPS, he said, was great, but he felt more comfortable relying on the stars opposed to satellites. The waters off the Kimberley can be treacherous, with strong currents generated by the huge tides. You get like seven knot currents sometimes. You'd be... We got caught a few times and you'd be motoring against the current and not getting anywhere. We're at the back end of the cyclone season and the charts for these waters show much less detail 
of the shallows and the reefs than the well-traveled waters. The storm. On the second day out from Darwin, we're halfway across the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf with a constant 20-knot wind on our tail. Gus and I are on the night shift. You always have to have two on night shift just in case someone falls overboard. I imagine what feelings of doom someone would have treading water miles away from land as the boat disappears over the horizon. The hull of a magica slices through the smooth, silky surface of the Indian Ocean, stirring up bioluminescence that on this moonless night sparks off the rudder, leaving a fading luminous green trail behind us. Down in the galley, Jim Morrison sings, and I can hear the heavy clicks of driftwood backgammon pieces as Dave, Josie and Brian sit around the galley table. Shit. I'm in the middle of the Indian Ocean sailing a yacht. How did this happen? Dave had been up on deck just after sunset taking readings from the visible stars to plot our position. The course we were to hold would take us safely through deep water toward the Berkeley River. We're going with the swell and the wind that blows from the northeast. The swell picks up, lifting the back end of the magica and throwing us down the face of waves. At 10pm, a really strong gust howls through the rigging, sending the broom across the deck with a sickening jar. Dave's head appears at the hatch, and Gus and I look at him, like a kid might look at his dad, wondering if we're in danger. Get that main down, Gus. Rich, I need help up front. The head sail's too big for this wind. We're going to change it. It's not easy wedged up against the safety rail at the bow, unclipping in the fasteners, folding the sail up and into the sail hatch and re-clipping the smaller one. The clips are a bit like the, when you clip a dog, like that kind of clip. Dave winches the smallest, so I'll explain it. So there's a wire, a, I don't know what you call it actually, <laughs> strainer, wire. There's a wire that runs from the bow up to the top of the mast, and that's what it runs at. Call it 45 degrees, it's probably totally different, but it runs up at an angle, and that's what you clip the front of the head sail onto, the one side of the triangle. And then the bottom triangle, you pull back either either side onto the winches. Hope that makes sense. Ah, oh, I actually went sailing again the other week, but it wasn't the same. We got with these racing guys, and uh, it was all about turns. It's bloody nightmare. I wasn't chilling, just cruising through the ocean, traveling. It's not easy wedged up against the safety rail at the bow, unclipping the fasteners, folding the sail up and into the sail hatch and re-clipping the smaller one. Dave winches the small sail back up the mast. Brian winches it tight and Gus holds our course. We are hooning. The hull is digging deep into the sea, pushing water over the two of us. Dave starts laughing. Why, this is sailing, mate! He yells over the noise of the pounding ocean. All teeth and the whites of his eyes. 
I'm not so sure it's too early in our acquaintance. We're either completely safe or Dave's a lunatic. Dave is stoked. The wind, the spray of the ocean is invigorating. The rest of us hold on. We don't know what the yacht can handle. And there are reports of a cyclone down south of a possibility we could get the tail end of it. It would be a long night out in the gulf with the yacht rising and falling and the anchor chain scraping and banging in the bow. Rich, Rich! Bry hovered over my bunk. It's your shift, mate. I put the kettle on. Oh, fuck. Can't even do a Yorkshire accent here. Rich, Rich. Bry was hovered over my bunk. It's your shift, mate. I put the kettle on. I was enjoying my dream. I was back on land, away from all this to and fro. Moving around the yacht is difficult. The magic falls down the face of a wave and I'm thrown across the galley, opening up a cut on my elbow that was on the men from the road accident with Leo the Greek. Fuck! The cooker's swinging on its hinges and the kettle's whistling to be taken off the blue flame. Coffees are poured and handballed on a deck where I stagger around until I find my spot in between the legs and feet. I wedge myself in. Behind the big rollers, the bright sandy beaches come in and out of view, along either side of the river mouth. There's the Berkeley River, Dave said. It's a lot of tide, but we're going to try and get in there. As we close in, the waves begin to break off the sandbanks, and we surf towards the entrance. Apologies to for Dave for his accent, because... He didn't sound exactly like that, but I can't do his accent, so I've got to do like a different kind of accent. <laughs> and it'll probably change a lot through the story, but how else am I going to do him? Um, There's the Berkeley River, Dave said. It's low tide, but we're going to try and get in there. As we close in, the waves begin to break off the sandbanks, and we surf toward the entrance. Imagine you needed two metres of water to float. The depth sounder on the hull of the boat set, sends back a reading at 5 metres, 4.3, 4.1, 3.3, 3.5, 2.1. Uh, the thought of escaping this ocean had been worth the risk. We had taken it, but now it seemed we were going to have to go take Magica back out into deeper water, away from the break zone. We head further down the coast toward the King George River, but the light's failing, so Dave steers into this semi-protected bay called Seaplane Bay. Look it up, I think someone crashed a plane there once. That's where it got its name from. I think they were German guys. But the swell was still wrapping around the point, causing the mast to arc around the sky. Brian and me were bunked in the aft of the yacht at the rear. The bunk was stuffy and stank of diesel. It was hard to sleep knowing how exposed we were to the mood of the ocean. The rocking of the boat increased so much it woke me up, and I laid on my belly, clutching the edges of my bunk, 
listening to the anchor dragging along the seabed. I'm counting the rocks. Like, one, two, three. On three, I'm fucking airborne. And I'm thrown across the cabin. I bang my head against the side of the yacht and land on top of Bray who wakes up and starts freaking out. Fucking hell, fucking hell. Bray, sorry, man, there's fucking waves. Another wave slams against the side of a magic and floods in through our porthole. Dave opens his roof hatch to take a look around but closes it when a huge wave appeared out of the darkness. All hands on deck! Everybody, get your shit together! For a few seconds, Brian and I sit there on the end of our bunks, coming round to the situation. Oh, fuck. When David weighed anchor last night, he had sounded the depth sounder. But during the night, the tide dropped by some 20 feet, and with the pumping swell, the waves started to break on top of us. We didn't actually know as well that he'd done the depth sounder, but behind us was a shallower section of water like a reef and we were over the reef in a little bit of deeper water so when the tide dropped and the swell picked up it started cranking off this reef behind us so waves were breaking all about the boat and there were big waves like like on on face about 12 foot waves which is a in Surfer terms, that's a six-foot wave. FYI. Um, where were we? Yeah. Dave needs help up at the bow. I, Bri was going to go, but I'd, I'd run up front. Bri won't want to hear this, but I thought I had better balance than Bri, and I didn't want him to fall overboard. <laughs> but it was fucking dodgy. Um... Josie's down in the galley. She's refusing to come on deck. She can't even swim. Gus is at the helm, gripping the wheel. As a magic has pushed backwards towards the rocks. The motor's running and a magic is only just making it over the waves. We don't have enough power to drive us forward. We're slowly getting pushed back. We need sail power. And the wind's actually howling. Dave and me are up front. I'm laid on my stomach, wedged between the two safety rails and the waves towering over us. Dave un unclips the headsail and hands it to me to stuff down the hatch. When I pull my arm back out from the hatch, I catch my watch on the hatch lip and my watch spins across the deck on its face in slow motion. Even in this moment of terror, I find myself watching it. I can see the luminous... Uh, face of it underneath glowing and it's just rotating slowly off the deck and then it slipped out over the side Richard the storm sail grab the storm sail I awkwardly pass it and we clip it on Gus is screaming from the helm there's no steering Dave there's no steering we're nearly on the rocks we'd hooked up the storm sail and we were about to raise it before Dave ran back to the helm The problem was, because we weren't driving forward, the rudder wasn't, didn't have any purchase in the water, so it, it wasn't steering for that reason.
We're nearly on the rocks. We'd hooked up the storm sail and are about to raise it. Swell looms, sails kicking wildly in the wind. I look back at Dave, he's taken over the helm. Gus's eyes widen as above me another huge wave puts the boat in shadow. I hold on tight, my arms around the mast. All around the yacht, the ocean has lost it, white and angry. I could have laughed. I, I had a visual, I could see, I had like an out-of-body experience. I could see my scared self from above, holding on for my pathetic life again. I looked up at the flapping sail. I don't want to let go, but we have to get power to drive us out of danger. I just have to go for it. I let go of the mast, both hands. I grab the, the rope and the winch, and I pull the rope as hard as I can to jack up the, um, it's called a halyard rope that pulls up the sail. I pull that as hard as I can, and then I wind the, the rope around the, the winch. Then I get the handle and just start cranking it frantically. <laughs> Until this tiny sail starts stressing in the wind. Then I tie it off. And we slowly start edging out to sea. Just scraping over the monstrous swell. I crawl back to a safer position in the cockpit. As we break into deeper waters. Where the swell rolls instead of breaking. I can hear gas. She's with Josie trying to comfort her, but being really scared herself's not very convincing. We joke to cover our fear and distract us from the reality that we're sailing out into a howling storm in the middle of the night. Oi! Get my aloe, will you, Richo? Dave's main concern was his aloe vera pot plant that slid on the cockpit shelf and dropped into the galley. Dave knew his butt, so where we were shitting it, he was probably moderately concerned. Saying that, that I wouldn't have liked to get washed up on the rocks in croc-infested waters in the middle of the night. Caught on the edge of a cyclone swell. Dave needs to check his charts. He gives a helm to Bry, who finds himself in his element. Wedged up against the wheel, ramping over the waves. Woohoo! Bry's screaming. He looks impressive, he's silhouetted against the moon, the faint green glow of the compass light glistening droplets of sea spray on his brown skin. Imagica battles her way through the rough sea for hours. What gonna do, Dave? someone asked. The aloe vera plant slides back across the cockpit shelf. Grab that fucking plant, will ya? <laughs> Dave had been on his charts, doing some calculations. Remember, he didn't have a GPS. He pointed to land. We're going to sail into the bay that leads up the King George River. I looked over to where Dave saw land. It was only just recognisable as a darker black line below the sky. It started to rain. The moon was caught behind cloud. How? I asked. We'll be okay. Dave assures us. As we approach the land, no one speaks. Dave focuses severely. We can't see a thing through the rain. But Dave just holds his course. Dead certain it will take us through the narrow inlet into the safety of the bay. A hundred metres off, the moon comes out for a split second. 
illuminating a narrow entrance. Either side of it, gnarly rocks rise up from the ocean and disappear into the swell. The rains get heavier, narrowing our eyes. The moon is lost again and we're in complete darkness. We can't see more than a few feet in front of the bow, but Dave is committed and going in on his compass readings. As we edge forward, I feared that the cliffs will appear suddenly and we'd be smashed into tiny pieces. But suddenly the moon comes back out and the rain stops, allowing us to surf safely between the craggy jaws. The King George River is taking a battering, wave after wave. We couldn't get in tonight, so Dave steered the boat north into a sheltered pocket. I hope you like this episode. It'd be good if you could share it with like-minded people who like real adventures and real stories. And, uh, yeah, I'd be grateful for that. Um, I was going to say... Oh yeah, a couple of stuff ups. I said broom instead of boom when the because at the bottom of the mast as it comes across the deck, the bottom of the mast is called the boom, the big aluminium beam that comes back, and uh, that's the thing that knocks people out a lot in movies, where uh, suddenly comes across deck when the wind changes or they t change course and uh, they get knocked overboard. So it wasn't a broom, um, and. When I said, contract bill, I guess you could contract it. See you soon in my imagination. And I just want to say that listening to your own podcast is the epitome of talking to yourself. I'm like Mr. Bean. I listen to my own podcast and I go to the podcast and go, oh, someone listen. <laughs> uh, seriously though. No, I, I do listen to them. In, only when I'm doing stuff that's simple, like no brainers, out in the garden. I just wander around and it kind of calms me down and gives me peace. So, yeah, it's a good benefit for myself. And I hope it gives you guys peace. You guys peace. And just to clarify, when I say guys, it's just what we say these days, isn't it? You uh, ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, men and women. Jeez, my battery just nearly didn't start on the ute, so um, it's like <laughs> the last podcast by Tales from the Ute because uh, I can't go anywhere anymore.